verse 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And for our time, I want to just focus on those words that end that verse. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We've already covered the substance and main emphasis of this chapter, but as I thought about it, I thought we would miss a a great opportunity if we just went on without digging down really deeply into what exactly is being said and what the Apostle Paul is doing when he says this. If you've read this chapter many times, it might not strike you that the Apostle, a Jewish man, writing to the church in Corinth, primarily Gentiles, would say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But if you go back and and think about the, the setting in which this statement is made, it's quite remarkable. And so I want to drill down here in order to fix the meaning of the words in our minds and really get the full import of what he's saying. I want to break up this short portion of the verse under two headings and then we'll we'll go on further to to apply it. First we see a historical reality and then there's a typological identity. First notice the historical reality. These words describe an actual historical event that took place if we if we remove the words our Passover lamb, we're left with this. Christ has been sacrificed. Now notice here that the subject that Paul is speaking of is Christ. We, we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a real person. Christ is not an idea. Christ is not a series of people like we might, you might could say, uh, the Pope of Rome. Well, that could be many of uh, one of many men, or it could be the one who's the Pope now. Christ is not that. There, there are not many people being spoken of here. This is a particular individual, a, a, a real, identifiable, historical figure that if we wouldn't have gone back into the first century and walked around the area of Galilee or, in, or the, around the area of Jerusalem, more than likely we could have put our hands on the shoulder of a man and said, this is the individual that Paul's talking about here. Christ, Jesus the Christ. True God and true man. This is the, would have been known at one point as the carpenter of Nazareth. I got a, a, a bench that needs to be fixed. Take it to the carpenter. My door is broken. Call the carpenter. I need a new chair. Call the carpenter. That's him, the carpenter of Nazareth. But he's also the Lord of glory. He was the true, is the true son of Mary, and yet he is the eternally begotten son of God. When we begin to think about it, we won't go very far into this, but this individual that we're talking about is mysterious. There is mystery involved in who this is, and yet... He's nonetheless a real person, an individual person. 
That's what we're talking about, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And the action that Paul describes here is a past and completed event. Christ, this individual, has been sacrificed. Now that is referring to the penal and substitutionary death of that man Jesus on the cross. Penal meaning it was a death according to the law or required by the law. This Jesus, in His death, satisfied the legal requirements of God's justice. The law required a death for sins committed. This Christ died that death. It was a penal death and it was also substitutionary, which means His death was the substitutionary death in the place of other people. This this one, it wasn't his own sins that he was paying for. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying as a substitute for other people who had sinned. That's why we refer to it as a, a penal and substitutionary death. And it was a sacrifice. It was an offering of himself to God. It was He gave himself to placate the righteous requirements of God's law, God's justice. As we see in Ephesians 5, 2, that Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we have this historical reality, an event that happened at a moment in time, and what is really a description of the whole gospel. Christ, the Son of God, was offered up to God as a sacrifice in the place of other people so that God's law could be satisfied, His justice could be put at rest, and yet sinful men could go free and could be saved. Christ has been sacrificed. But then secondly, we see the typological identity. Typological is a big word. points out the reality that this phrase, our Passover lamb, is is addressing what we call in biblical interpretation a type. A type doesn't mean kind. A type in, in theological discussion is a person, a place, a thing, or an event that that had historical significance. It took place in history, and yet it points to something greater. It, it was, it was, it's meant to prepare us for something else that would come along in the future, a greater reality. And that's what we see, the typological identity of this Christ in the words, our Passover lamb. Now the Passover lamb, unlike the Christ himself, the Passover lamb was a, a, a sort of a standing concept among the Jews that was instantiated, it found its, its, its reality in an instance, every year at the Passover meal. So the Jews would have known of the concept of the Passover lamb, and yet for each of them they could have identified many individual lambs that were their Passover lambs. Every year, every Israelite household was to kill and eat a lamb that they called the Passover, the Passover lamb. And that lamb was to remind them of the original Passover lambs that were slaughtered on the night when the nation of Israel left Egyptian bondage. 
Now, there were no doubt thousands of lambs that were killed at the very first Passover. And then from that point, every year when the Passover is celebrated, no doubt thousands or tens of thousands more, every time this feast is kept, the Passover lamb is a, 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 a big thing. But, but Paul doesn't say Christ the Passover lambs. He says Christ our Passover lamb. And so he takes this long-standing tradition, which would have encompassed thousands if not millions of lambs, and he narrows it them all down to one. One. Our singular lamb. And he takes what was celebrated and restricted to the Israelites, the Jewish people, and he applies it broadly to the whole church. When he says our, he takes himself, a Jewish man, he joins arms with the Corinthians, a Gentile church like a bunch of us, not Jews, and he says this Christ is our lamb. The whole Christian church, this is important, the whole Christian church now shares one singular Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. So the original annual, original and annual Passover lambs used by the Israelites were types of a greater lamb. They, all of the many thousands of them, were all pointing to one. They were getting ready for the one lamb. They were, they were meant to turn the minds of the people as they killed the lamb. They were meant to turn the minds of the people to this one singular lamb, Jesus Christ. He is the true lamb. So Paul's saying that the Passover was a foreshadowing of the work of Christ for His church that, as we've already seen, Israel was a type of the church, a, a picture of a people of God under the rule of God, pointing to the greater reality, which is found in the, the church as a whole, that Egypt and Pharaoh were representative of a greater and more deadly bondage than just being slaves to a people. The Exodus was a picture of a greater and more significant deliverance for the people of God. What Christ did for the church is the real thing, what we call the antitype. Christ and His sacrifice for us is the real picture. That's what God was trying to point to. What the Passover lambs did for Israel was just the type. It was getting us ready for the greater reality. While the original Passover and Exodus does have its own historical significance, its fuller purpose was to point forward to a greater bondage, a greater lamb, a greater death, a greater deliverance. Does that make sense? Yeah. What happened back then was getting ready for something better, bigger on all fronts. Now for the rest of our time, I want to go back and really go back and forth between the original Passover and Christ in the gospel. Type, anti-type, type, anti-type. This is what happened then, this is what it points to now. This is what happened then, this is what it points to now. And just show you as, as many as we can, and there, there are more than what I'll be able to show you, but show you uh, the, the many different relationships between what originally took place 
and what we now experience as believers in Christ. And, and what I think this is going to do is, is help us to close out the year. You know, this is the last morning service that we'll have of the year. But it, I think it will help us close out the year with one thing that I think we always need to be growing in. And that is our appreciation for the unity and majesty of the Word of God and the work of God historically and providentially. That when you see these things come together, you realize the Bible is not just a, 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 a bunch of ideas or thoughts or scattered fragmentary historical records thrown together. But actually from the beginning all the way to the end is one singular story. And historically, providentially, God has been knitting this story together. So it gives us a greater appreciation for God's Word. But also, and more importantly, I think... Uh, or maybe the end of that even would be a, a deeper appreciation for what Jesus Christ has done for us and for our salvation. So that's what I want to do. Uh, and I do want to say, because of the, uh, the theme that we're studying here, that we're going to be looking at, we're going to skip our normal prayer time at the end of the service that divides up the sermon from the Lord's Supper. And we're just going to go straight from the concept of the Passover straight into the Lord's Supper. This, so this will be sort of like a communion sermon, if you will. So hopefully that won't be too confusing. It'll just uh, simplify matters a little bit for today. But, and, I, and I thought, well, it doesn't make sense to give all of this, just drive us to Christ and then take a break and then come back and try to drive us back to Christ again when we can just be driven there and we can sit there. And so that's... That's what we'll do. If you will, turn with me to Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12. And, and we'll just be all over the place here and I'll make references. And if you, if you care to look at them, you can. But that's where we'll be reading from the original Passover story. As you're turning, I will say that material on this subject is not lacking. And I'm not the first one who's found these things. This is not something that I said, man, this is amazing. I discovered this this week. Many men have gone before us and have drawn upon these threads. And, and, and historically, uh, we are indebted to many of them. I, I'm, I'm going to be leaning on two. The first is Benjamin Keach, who's been leading us in our Sunday evening studies. He, he wrote a massive work entitled, Preaching from the Types and Metaphors of the Bible. And the whole theme of it is this idea of, these pictures from the Old Testament that point to uh, realities in the New Testament. And then the other is a man named William McEwen in a book that he wrote called The Glory and Fullness of Jesus Christ, which is really the same thing, shrunk down into a very easy-to-read, easy-to-follow uh, address on, on this subject. These are works that deal exclusively with typology. And so if this is a thing you say... Man, that's amazing. I love that idea. Well, I can, I can point you to, some, to these resources that will, will stir this up and, and give you more than I'll be able to give. So Keach, referring, actually quoting to the words of somebody else that he doesn't reference, says that the whole doctrine of the gospel is preached in the Passover. If we pay attention, everything in the gospel is found in Exodus 12 and the concept of the Passover, and the original Passover. And he breaks this up into five categories. First, number one, the choice of the sacrifice. 
Number two, the preparing of the sacrifice. Number three, in the application of the blood. Four, in the eating of the sacrifice. And five, in the fruits and use of the sacrifice. And so that's, I'm going to use his categories to structure what we're going to say. And, and as we do this, it will be fascinating and your, our minds are tempted to just think about Israel and Egypt and the things that were happening. And, and that's important. I'm not saying ignore that. But let this, let this material just fill your heart and your mind with the glory of what Christ has done. Just Even if you don't turn to any of the scriptures and you just listen. Just listen to the gospel. So first, in the choice of the sacrifice... As for the choice of the animal to be sacrificed, it was to be a lamb. Exodus 12, verse 3. Every man shall take a lamb. A lamb is an excellent illustration of Jesus Christ in many ways. I'll give you just a few. First, because a lamb is a gentle creature. And it was said of Jesus Christ... In Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Our Lord was not an abrasive man, but a tender man. He was not harsh, but gentle. So gentle that children were brought to him that he might lay his hand on them and pray, Matthew 19, 13. Would, would you want a callous and insensitive man, a known a violent man to be handling your children? Of course you wouldn't. And yet these people knew that this man was one, that they could bring their children to him and say, touch them, pray for them, and stand back and watch because he was a tender, a gentle man. A lamb is an innocent or harmless creature. Nobody ever said, you probably never heard anyone say, we got this lamb out here that's been killing all of our chickens. Or watch that lamb, he's been known to bite the children's fingers. Nobody ever said that about a lamb because lambs are what we would call harmless, innocent. And so also Jesus Christ is called holy and innocent or harmless in Hebrews 7.26. He was harmless to his fellow man. A lamb is a creature without defense. We would say a defenseless creature. So also when we... See Christ accused of crimes. We read in Matthew 27, 14, He gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ did not defend himself against his Accusers. A lamb is a creature that is useful both in its life and in its death. As long as it lives, its wool is good for clothing, and when it dies, its meat is good for food. So also, Christ's holy life was for us and for our salvation, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him and in His death. He was equally as useful because in His death our sins are atoned for and justice is satisfied. Christ is useful in His life and in His death. 
Christ our Lamb is the perfect sacrifice for sinners. And Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Not only were they required to choose a lamb, but it had to be a specific kind of lamb. It had to be a male lamb, one year old. Verse 5 of Exodus 12, a male, a year old. A year old male lamb has entered into the prime of its life. It's not so young that it's utterly helpless, nor is it so old that it's all but useless in the prime of its life. And this is a perfect type of Jesus Christ who died for us. He gave up His life in the very prime of His life. He was not youthful and immature, nor was He old and spent as to His strength, but he was 33 years old. Some have calculated that during his three and a half year ministry, he walked somewhere around 2,500 miles on foot. And we know that after being beaten nearly to death in, a, in an act that killed many men, he was still able to get up and carry his own cross some distance. Physically speaking, he gave up his life when he was at his strongest. And spiritually speaking, he is still perfectly able and capable to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Hebrews 7, 25. It is Jesus Christ even in His death, spoken of in Isaiah 63, 1, splendid in His apparel, marching in the greatness of His strength, mighty to save. That's our Lamb. In His prime, dying for sinners. The Lamb also had to be without blemish. Exodus 12.5, your lamb shall be without blemish. That is, it had to be free of all spots, all defects, all ailments. The lamb could have no limp, no scab, no mange. What a great picture of our great high priest who was without sin. Hebrews 4.15, he offered himself as a sacrifice without blemish. Hebrews 9.14 Even Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23.4 And remember the dying thief who hung beside him on the cross stated it perhaps the most simply of all. This man has done nothing wrong. Not one of us in this room could take that upon ourselves. And yet this man, Christ, was one without blemish. The lamb had to be taken from the fold. And kept, Hebrews 12, 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb. And then verses 5 and 6, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. So the lamb was to be chosen out from among the common flock and then brought near and kept separately near to the household. And so it was with Christ that he was from the common fold of Israel. He was taken from among their brothers, Deuteronomy 18, 18. He's Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1, 1. But he's also from the common fold of just the human race in general. As we read in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. He's, he's a lamb given for the men of every race, not just the Jewish race, but every race. Because all of us have been born under the law and its curse. Everyone born of a woman is born under the curse of the law 
And this lamb is a sufficient sacrifice for every one of those. No one can say, well, he's not a lamb for me. I was born from something besides a woman. Rightly could John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the Jews, not just the Gentiles, the world. So Christ prefigured, we see here, in the choosing of the sacrifice. Number two, we see Christ, our Passover, fulfilling the shadows cast in the preparation of the sacrifice. The preparation of the sacrifice. First, the lamb must be killed. Exodus 12, 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs. So also Peter said in Acts 2, verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. He was killed. The lamb had to be then roasted with fire. Exodus 12, 8. Roasted on the fire. This points us to the fiery torment, even the very hell of God's wrath, which was poured out upon Christ, our Passover lamb. In the language of Isaiah 53, he was pierced, he was crushed. Upon him was chastisement and wounds. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was cut off out of the land of the living, he was stricken. And then, if that weren't enough, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased God to crush his son. And so in Psalm 88, he says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me, roasted by God's wrath, as he endures that in the place of sinners. He even says in Psalm 22, My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. So awful was the torment that He even cried a cry that none of us who are in Christ will ever have to utter. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had to be roasted. The lamb also had to be roasted whole. Exodus 12, 9, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. The whole lamb roasted. And this is to remind us that Christ endured the wrath of God both in body and soul. It wasn't just a physical torment, but a physical and spiritual torment. It was a whole Christ which was given for us. A whole Christ suffered so that our whole man can be saved, body and soul. So we see it wasn't merely a lamb, but a lamb chosen and prepared. And so in Christ, our Passover lamb, it's not merely the person, but also the work which is necessary for our salvation. Thirdly, in the use and application of the blood of the lamb, we also see a picture of Christ, our Passover. What did they do with the blood? First, the blood was to be caught in a basin. It's referred to as the blood that is in the basin, Exodus 12, 22. And that is to say, none of it was to be wasted, none of it was to be spilt, none of it was to be trampled under 
the feet of men. This is to remind us of the preciousness of Christ's blood. The blood of Jesus is the most precious blood that has ever been spilt. None of it was wasted, but all of it was shed to save sinners. But only a Christian can recognize the true value of the blood of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Think about where you would be without that blood. Is there anything in this life that you would trade for that blood? You say, no, nothing, not at all. My, my eternal soul is, rests in that blood. Then it must be the most precious blood that's ever flowed through the veins of a man. It was to be caught in a basin. Then it was to be smeared with hyssop. Verse 22 of Exodus 12, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. The, the hyssop symbolizes the faith by which we are to take hold of Christ and make use of the blood. Apart from faith, there is no use of Christ's blood. All of this could have taken place, and yet if your faith is not in this Christ, it will avail nothing for you. Apart from faith, there's no use of Christ's blood, but we have been justified by faith, Romans 5.1. The blood must be appropriated. It must be applied. And that's the picture that's given by the hyssop. Something has to get that blood from the basin and then make use of it. And we see it that as we go further, the blood with the hyssop was to be smeared on the doorway. Verse 7 of Exodus 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So it was to go on the outside of the door and it would have been seen only by those who passed through that doorway And they were to enter in behind that door, behind the blood. And then once they were inside, they were not allowed to leave. You put the blood on the doorway, you go in, you shut the door, don't come back out. And this teaches us that the only way to safety from divine wrath is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Your sins stand against you. And you will answer for them in the judgment, apart from the application and use of this blood. But 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. When it is used, when it is applied and appropriated, and when we take our hiding place behind it, we're safe and cleansed. So in the use of the blood, we see pictures of the gospel and of Christ. Number four, in the eating of the sacrifice. We see it many types. First, it must be eaten. Simple enough, right? Exodus 12, 8, They shall eat the flesh that night. And here again we're taught that Christ must be appropriated by each of us if we are to be saved. It's not enough that He is the Lamb. He must be our Lamb. How do we make Him ours? We eat our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Again, all of the work of Christ is in vain for us if it is not eaten by faith. 
And this is the, the thing that the Jews of Christ's day couldn't, couldn't stand to hear. As Jesus spoke in John chapter 6, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's a picture of faith, of living upon him. They could not endure it. They said, this is too much. The sacrifice had to be eaten. The sacrifice had to be eaten inside according to a household. The lamb was to be eaten inside the house according to a household. 12.3 of Exodus. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And this is to symbolize the unity of the church of Jesus Christ, which is called the household of God. We are all one household, therefore we all have one lamb. One lamb per household. We who are many are one body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. The Passover meal was only for Israelites and those who would join their nation. In verse 43 of Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Verse 45, No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Verse 48, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And this is to teach us that only Believers, only those united to Christ by His Holy Spirit, circumcised of heart through regeneration, are under the protective benefits of Christ the Lamb. You can't just take the benefits of, of what Christ has done without the new birth. That's why the Bible says you must be born again, circumcised of heart. The Lamb was to be eaten with bitter herbs. Exodus 12, 8, with bitter herbs they shall eat it. This points us to the grief and godly sorrow, the bitterness that attends true repentance. Taking Christ, our Passover lamb, by faith always requires or implies the concomitant grace of true repentance. Two sides of the same coin. Where there's faith, there will be repentance. And often faith comes out of us in great joy and gladness, taking hold of Christ. But repentance comes out in sorrow and grief and bitterness because we know our sins. Christ said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn. And Paul could say in Romans 7 of himself, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death? So it had to be eaten with bitter herbs, but it also had to be eaten with unleavened bread. Exodus 12, 8, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread. As we've seen from 1 Corinthians 5, sincerity and truth. Christ must be taken in full faith, no doubting, no hypocrisy, 
And he must be taken in truth. No falsehoods, no, no piece of Christ left out, but all of him in the fullness of the revelation. That's how he must be taken. Bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The Passover meal was to be eaten regularly as a memorial. This is Exodus 12, 25 to 27. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So too Christ and His work is to be remembered regularly. 1 Corinthians 22, or 11, 24, Do this in remembrance of Me. None of the lamb was to be left through the night. Exodus 12.10, You shall let none of it remain until the morning. So also Christ's body was not left on the cross through the night. John 19.31 says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, and remember their Sabbath would have began on Saturday evening at sundown, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And so he was taken down and was not left to hang on the cross through the night. The Passover meal was to be eaten in a posture of readiness. Exodus 12, 11, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. This is to remind us of at least this, that those who partake of Christ, our Passover, it is to remind us that we are strangers and sojourners. Our lives are called the time of your exile, 1 Peter 1.17. We desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Hebrews 11.16, because, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. This world is not our home. And so when we come to Christ, we receive Christ, and all of a sudden we realize we are looking for something else. We are longing for something more than what is here. And so Christ is typified in the eating of the sacrifice. Then fifthly, the final category, in the fruits and use of the sacrifice. What are some of the typological fruits or uses, the the, the benefits of this work of Christ, our Passover being sacrificed? These are just this is just a a spattering in, in no particular order. Through the final plague of the Passover this is the tenth of, of these plagues. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and his dynasty was spoiled. Why? Because his firstborn son died. And later on, he died. We read in Exodus 12, 29 and 30, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great outcry, a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone 
was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. So also Christ, our Passover, by his death, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in his cross. In his death, he triumphed over the enemy. We read in Exodus 12, 33, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. Verse 36, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They didn't leave by themselves. They took treasure, gold and silver, and even people as they left. In the Passover, the house of Egypt was plundered. Not only of gold and silver, but of the people of Israel that had been held hostage by Pharaoh. God Himself in the Exodus entered into the house of the strong man, conquered the enemy of His people, and delivered them out by the death of the Lamb. And so it is with Christ, our Passover Lamb, who entered into the house of the strong man, the devil who himself has the power of death. Christ entered into His house in His death, and in His death conquered and bound the devil, and in His resurrection plundered him of his spoils. As Paul says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives. He did not come out alone, but came out leading His people to victory. Because the Passover lamb was slain, the sons of Israel were spared, Exodus 12, 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. And so it was by death that death was escaped. It was the death of the Lamb which sheltered the sons from death. And so it is with the death of Christ, our Passover Lamb. It is by His death that we escape death. By the death of our Lamb, we are sheltered from death. It was the presence of the blood that signaled the passing over of a house. Verse 23, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The blood on the doorpost and the lintel was a signal. Death has already been at this house. Death has already taken place here. And so we who are united to Christ have been baptized, Paul says, into his death. And so when the justice of God goes out seeking satisfaction and it comes to our house, the blood and death of Christ says death has already been here. A death has already taken place. Death has no sting for us who are behind the blood of the Lamb. Do we die physically? We do. Christians die. But that's merely passing into the presence of our Christ. There's no sting to death anymore. Sin is a more cruel taskmaster than Pharaoh could have ever been. Sin enslaves not only the bodies of men, but the souls of men. 
But by the blood of Christ, we are set free from the bondage of sin. There is no tyrant as strong and cruel, as unrelenting as death. We even see the phrase in the scripture, uh, as cruel as the grave. Even Pharaoh himself could not escape this tyrant. He couldn't rescue his own son from the dictator, death. Death is a cruel tyrant, comes for all. And yet our Passover, Christ overwhelmed death in His own death. Death finds its own death in the death of Christ. It was the firstborn sons of Israel who were spared by the death of the Passover lamb. Those sons were then to be consecrated unto the Lord. So it is that we who have Christ as our Passover, we who were not sons, are united to Christ, the only begotten Son, and we are made sons and heirs of God by adoption so that we inherit the kingdom of our Father and are consecrated to Him forever. Sons are made. And in closing, lastly, why are we here today? Why, why didn't we come yesterday? Why don't we come tomorrow? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, even our calendar has been rearranged. The Sabbath is changed from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And many people struggle with this. Oh, I, just, I just don't see the change of the day, the change of the day, the change of the day. I, the, the Sabbath was Saturday. The Sabbath was Saturday. Would it be strange of God to rearrange a calendar based on an event of redemption? No, it would not. For Israel, it was the same. Exodus 12, 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Well, we used to... The, the, the calendar was actually... We're still waiting on the first... No, no, this is your first month now. We're starting over. Why? Because you're about to be redeemed. The natural scheduling of what we call the year, a time period framed in by the... Lights of heaven, natural, you can calculate a year by the movement of the heavenly bodies. That natural time frame was altered or rearranged for these people by God to suit a temporal deliverance by the blood of the Passover lambs. And so with all who have Christ as our Passover, the time frame that was ordered originally by the work of God in creation and His rest from it, the week. The stars don't tell us what a week is. The sun doesn't tell us what a week is. Why, why seven days? Because God worked six and rested on the seventh. That time frame set into place because God worked and rested has been rearranged and altered for us to match our eternal and spiritual deliverance by the completed work of Christ. We've not been brought out of Egypt. We've been brought out of death and hell and sin. And so our week is no longer ordered around a seventh day creation Sabbath, but a first day new creation Sabbath. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You say, well, wait a second. Wouldn't that mean that our Sabbath would be Friday? Well, as in all types and anti-types, there are changes. There's advancement. There's improvement. Unlike the original Passover, 
With Christ, there are no charred remains outside of every house in Egypt. Our Passover lamb is risen from the dead. So it is the day of His resurrection, His exodus, that we now share with Him in the rest He enjoys from His labors. He worked and rested, and we join Him in that rest. Labors which were for us and for our salvation. He worked. He finished. He led out a host of captives. He emerged victorious from the throes of death. He ushered in the new creation, already begun and yet not yet consummated. And all of us who are united to Him are what? New creatures, new creation. And He rested. And so may all who can say, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Now let's keep all of this in mind as we come to the Lord's table. Remember that it was a Passover meal at which this sacrament was established. You say, was it the last Passover? Was it the first Lord's Supper? Yes. We read in Matthew 26, 26, Now as they were eating this Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And so when we see the bread broken for us, this is to be a, a, a reminder of the words of our passage. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Notice the past tense. Has been. It's finished. It's done. Completed work. Death has passed over. If you're a Christian, death has passed over. You're not waiting for the day to find out whether or not death has passed over. He has been sacrificed. Death has passed over. We are delivered from bondage. We have been brought out of Egyptian, the bondage of sin typified by Egypt, and brought near to God by the death of His Son. And as Hebrews says, we do not come to Mount Zion, but we come to the city of the living God, to the church of the firstborn. Again, there are always changes as these types come to fulfillment. I think it's very interesting that Isaiah says, whoever believes will not be in haste. And so we don't come to the Lord's Supper as if we were about to eat and then flee. Why? Because Christ has been sacrificed. We are delivered. We no longer eat the meal in a posture of readiness as if we were to flee our captors. We eat in a posture of rest because we're already free. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So as the elements are distributed, go to the cross and rejoice.